This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. In the untouched regions of the forest, the kōkako runs through the treetops feeding on leaves, flowers and fruit. The South Island kōkako, with its distinctive orange wattles at the base of the bill, hasn't been sighted in many years and may be extinct. A situation the blue wattle bird of the North Island may find itself in unless its habitat is preserved. Its delightful call includes a variety of rich organ and bell-like notes. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good day, friends. Today we have Stephen Zunas, a professor of international relations at the University of San Francisco, specializing in the Middle Eastern politics, U.S. foreign policy, and strategic nonviolent action. He's a scholar and an advocate of nonviolent people's power movements. You can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and community or chaos. Well, Stephen, how are you? Very good, thank you. Could you talk about your first thoughts when Putin began a full-scale invasion of Ukraine? Well, certainly a tragedy because it was pretty obvious this would turn into a major war. Uh, I mean, those of us in the West, uh, especially uh, um, you know, for Americans like me, you know, I've always you know, put my primary energy into uh, challenging U.S. imperialism and its various manifestations around the world. Um, but uh, for people of Eastern Europe, you know, it's it's not been U.S. imperialism that's been their their main concern. It's been it's been uh, that of, of of Russia, back from the Tsarist days, during the Soviet days, and now today uh, uh, um, under Putin. And while there's certainly U.S. policies in Eastern Europe and elsewhere that I I, I question, you know, the you know, there's no excuse uh, for for an invasion. I mean, Putin is seems to have combined the worst of czarist russia and communist russia into one uh he is you know um this is a you know, clear-cut uh, uh case uh, of aggression and the uh and yes we can certainly point out the uh, the po- uh the double standards the hypocrisy uh, in the west we can certainly question you know whether uh sending more and more arms to ukraine is the way to go but uh let, let's not uh, question that this uh that this is, is putin's war uh, this is a, a clear-cut uh, act of aggression. You wrote in the Progressive Magazine, March first, two thousand twenty-two, that a strong argument could also be made that the crisis could have been avoided if NATO had been willing to rule out membership for Ukraine, granting the nation a neutral status similar to Finland and Austria during the Cold War. However, at the same time, you said that Putin's rewriting of history and his insistence on the, that the Ukraine is inherently part of Russia, along with his decision to launch a full-scale invasion, 
is indicative that he would have done so regardless. Where do you go from here, and how do you negotiate with somebody like that? Well, it's a tough one. I mean, I, I certainly I think the the West did um, display a degree of, uh, of arrogance and, and hubris at the end of the Cold War, kind of triumphalism that you know, dismissed uh, post-Soviet Russia as a third-rate power. Um, and you know, there and and this really played into. Um, Putin's nationalism. I mean, let's remember that uh, Russia has been invaded four times, you know, from the West, uh, you know, the, the, the Napoleonic Wars, um, World War I, uh, the Allied intervention on the side of the, the, the monarchists uh, right after the Russian Revolution, uh, and of course, uh, you know, Hitler's uh, invasion in which the uh, Soviet Union lost over 20 million lives. And so, um, you know, they, 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 there's this kind of paranoia about their security on the uh, uh, on on their west, and you know, and and I think it would have you know it would have certainly uh, been good if you know Russian concerns and sentiments had been you know taken more thoroughly into account. But uh, as as I noted, if you if you read Putin's speeches about it. You know, there's actually very little uh, uh, mention of NATO. Uh, he's questioning uh, Ukraine's very right to exist. He's he's rewriting uh, history. Uh, he's claiming they're a bunch of Nazis, which they're not. He's uh, using. I mean, I I really think that this is uh, uh, about well, basically an imperial uh, an imperial design. And again, it's it's unfortunate that there are uh, uh, elements in NATO in the West that uh, you know could. Did take some actions that some people consider provocative. That could that some people are using as an excuse. Uh, but again, I think this is uh, you know something that uh, Putin would have uh, would have done done anyway, uh, regardless of the uh, Western position on on NATO. Well, the um, what do we do at this point? And as a Quaker and supporter and teacher of nonviolent resistance movement, how do you square your views on violence and Ukraine's right to resist the invasion of their country and their need for weapons to oppose invasion? I noticed that Gandhi said the time to oppose Hitler was before the war. Oh, yeah. And, the, and actually before he came to power, but certainly before the war. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard to figure out how you oppose somebody like Putin once they started an invasion, how you, you know. Yeah, I, I'm, you know, I, I'm not one to, to uh, make moral judgment about, you know, people who especially oppress people who feel a need to take up arms. I mean, uh, you know, certainly, uh, you know, and in, in, uh, it's a certainly a position that I took uh, during the Cold War when the United States was supporting all sorts of horrific right-wing governments and, People are taking arms up in various countries to to resist that. I, I do think that, as, as we've talked about in previous shows, I've talked a lot about the power of nonviolent action as an alternative to war. Um, indeed, Ukraine has quite a quite a history of that. Uh, when uh, Yanukovych uh, uh, tried to steal the um, uh, 2004 elections, uh, there was a mass massive civil uh, resistance uh, that uh, where the Supreme Court. Uh, saw that indeed uh, the the thing was rigged and they had a new election and Yanukovych lost. 
And then when Yanukovych got elected legitimately uh, several years later, when he ran for president again, he started taking on a whole series of unpopular moves, becoming increasingly authoritarian. The corruption was, uh, was um, notorious, uh, but they, they could not get the two-thirds majority to, to impeach him. Um, and so you know, people, they, they had another uh, popular, uh, popular uprising. Now, this one was more controversial because, indeed, in, in this, this case, Yanukovych was the democratically elected president. They did reject a compromise that would have had an earlier election. They basically, uh, you know, th- threw him out extra constitutionally. But again, people would argue he, he should have been impeached uh, you know, due to his uh, and just the corruption of the of, of his party and his com- com- similar sentiment many of us had had in the United States about about Trump, um, you know, he was clearly, clearly uh, guilty, but as part of the party uh, stayed, stayed with him anyway. Um, and, uh, but, but, uh, you know, the, the, there, there's been some effort to, to write, rewrite history. Some people are saying, oh, this was a U.S. coup. Now I have written, literally I've written books about U.S. sponsored coups around the world, like uh, Iran and Guatemala and then coups that the U.S. has actually supported, you know, like in Chile and Brazil and, and elsewhere. But this was not, a U.S. coup. This was a popular uprising. When again, one can, deve- can can debate, you know, whether they should have compromised or not. But this was a, a popular uprising, overwhelmingly nonviolent. There was some street fighting, and there were some armed paramilitary groups that seized some government buildings. That was only after Yanukovych left. It was not. I mean, the, these the, the people who were committing the violence. Many of these people were on the far right. You know, they're kind of the equivalent of the the, the black bloc style anarchists that will periodically you know, show up at leftist demonstrations. They may get most of the uh, media publicity, but they're only a minority of the people involved. Um, so the uh, Maidan uprising, as, as they call it, uh, was, uh, you know, did bring in a uh, um, temporary government, included a couple of far-right ministers, unfortunately, but they had the election a few months later, a, uh, another centrist government came in, but it was also fairly corrupt. Uh, but then uh, Zelensky was elected by 74% of the vote. Uh, he had he had a popular mandate. He wanted to end the, end the low-scale war that was taking a, a place in the Donbass region. He wanted to clean up corruption. He didn't get very far, though, and, and, and of course, and, and, and as we know, the Russians uh, invaded. And, and I think, you know, we, we um, um, when one can... I mean, if you're trying to think about why Russia invaded, I mean, frankly, you know, the, the, Noam Chomsky, when he talked about the U.S. intervention against democratically uh, elected leftist uh, governments, is that we didn't want the threat of a good example. The U.S. did not want a successful socialist experiment to take place in Latin America or wherever, and that's why we were willing to go to such extreme ends to uh, topple those governments. Well, I think in the case of Putin, uh, a, a, um, a Western uh, liberal democracy uh, that leaned toward Europe uh, would become a member of the EU. I mean, that's a thread of a good example, I think, for Russia that a people that have a you know similar culture and language you know, would go in that direction and be successful at it. Uh, I think some Russians might want to try to emulate it, and I think maybe that's what uh, might have uh, motivated uh, Putin to invade. Do you think if he had been? Uh, did he actually think that he would walk into Ukraine and be met with flowers and the, the invasion would be successful in a matter of, of days or even, you know, or, or weeks? Yeah, I, 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 that appears to be the, have been the plan. He planned to seize uh, Kiev and, 
and basically uh, install a puppet government um, that would um, agree to some kind of association with Russia. And clearly that did not happen. I mean, I think if I think historians may look back and say what finally formed the Ukrainian nation, it was Putin and, and the, uh, you know, the resistance to it. Because this idea that, um, um, I mean, Ukraine uh, has had a national identity for many, many centuries. I mean, for the 350 years, they're under Russian control, initially under the czars and under the Bolsheviks. They were the largest uh, captain nation in, in the world, the largest you know, a, a nation that didn't have a state and finally got a state. And, uh, you know, it, it is, it's a diverse country. Not everybody is Ukrainian, but you know, even the ethnic Russians, um, you know, it appears the majority, you know, wanted to be part of Ukraine, not, not part of Russia. Zelensky himself is an ethnic Russian. And so um, you know, I, I think this, this idea that, you know, the, the, the Russians are horribly oppressed and that uh, they wanted to reunite with the motherland, that kind of thing, that doesn't have, have much uh, basis to it. And besides, you know, even if the majority of people of Donbass and Crimea wanted to, uh, it is part of Ukraine, the, the Budapest. And, 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 uh, and, and uh, 20 years ago, the, uh, the, the uh, Ukraine and Russia with the support of the uh, United States and, 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 and Britain and other countries signed an agreement in, in Budapest that said in return for Ukraine giving up all these Soviet nuclear weapons that had been uh, left there, that uh, Russia and other countries would, would, would uh, honor uh, countries, uh, Ukraine's territorial integrity. And they violated that agreement. And so this war has been uh, like the invasion of Iraq when the U.S. invaded Iraq after Iraq gave up its nuclear uh, program and after it agreed for the International Atomic Energy Agency to have unfettered inspections. We set back the, the cause of nuclear proliferation because we showed people that, oh, if you disarm and, and bring in inspectors, we'll go ahead and, 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 and invade you anyway. Well, Russia, you know, it's a similar kind of thing. You know, they, they agreed to give up their nuclear weapons in return for recognizing a territorial integrity. Russia invades anyway. So what lesson does that give to, to countries that have a, that nuclear, uh, 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 that desire nuclear weapons? So again, this is a very, this, this, this invasion is a real disaster in terms of a world order and, and disarmament and a bunch of things. The, it makes sense that, doesn't it, in a way, that Europe would want to um, provide Ukraine with some defense weapons with the ability to defend themselves, and that other countries would do that. Now, they may all have different motives, but they don't have a sense of outrage at the invasion of, of Ukraine. And if they're a European country, they'd have worries about that. I mean, what yeah, would I, mean, it- I think. I think part part of the problem for the United States is that uh, we're not in a position to take much leadership on on this question. I mean, Biden is correct that uh, you know wars of aggression are illegal; they're a violation of the United Nations Charter. Yet, as head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, he was a leader in pushing the then Democratic controlled Senate to authorize Bush's invasion of Iraq. Similarly, uh, Biden quite correctly says uh, the. Um, Russia has you know, no right to expand its territory by force. Uh, no country can unilaterally change international boundaries. And yet the United States is the only country in the world that has formally recognized Israel's illegal annexation of the Golan region of Syria 
and Morocco's annexation of the entire country of Western Sahara. Um, the United States has backed Israel in saying that the Palestine Authority should be willing to give up large swaths of territory in the West Bank and in East, East Jerusalem that Israel conquered in 1967 if they want to have any kind of independent state. And so the United States has long taken the position that countries can expand their territory by force, that international boundaries you know, can be unilaterally changed as long as it's with our ally. And so, you know, this makes it very difficult for the U.S. to to take the kind of position it does vis-a-vis Russia. Now, this, unfortunately, is playing right into the hands of apologists for Putin. I mean, you have people in in large parts of Africa and Asia and Latin America and, and elsewhere that are 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 you know trying are trying to defend the Soviet defend the Russian position even though it's indefensible simply because they figure you know the West is so hypocritical there's so many double standards the West has lied about so many things they must be lying about mm-hmm. Ukraine too um, uh, unfortunately uh, you know that, that uh, uh, you know this is that this is ignoring that there's a you know aggression going on on the Russian side as well. Of course, when you talk about the West, there is some difference between the United States and the European Union countries. Like, I'm not saying the European Union countries never do anything wrong, but they have a slightly different record. Yeah, yeah. The um, and what's interesting is that the um, I mean, it's not that the United States pushed. Eastern European countries to become part of NATO against their will. They wanted to by huge majorities. Now, if I was Eastern European, I would have probably opposed it for various reasons, but I would have been a minority. <laughs> that, uh, you know, the, the, again, as I, as I was mentioning earlier, for Eastern Europeans, Russia is a threat, not the, uh, not the United mm-hmm. States. And um, so this, um, um, yeah, and, and yes, uh, the U.S., probably wanted to get all these Eastern European countries to get into NATO. So they'd have to buy NATO compatible equipment from us arms manufacturers. I'm sure there's a lot of money to be made and that kind of thing, but the U S was not going to attack Russia. I mean, that is, that is, that, that, that the, it was no, no threat to, to them whatsoever. I mean, if, 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 if Ukraine wants to be part of NATO, they may become part of NATO just as if Cuba or Nicaragua, Venezuela want to be aligned with Moscow you know, they have every right to do that without the fear of the U.S. attacking them. And so, you know, countries, you know, do, you know, can align as they, as they want to align. But unfortunately, I think that, uh, you know, this, this um, big, big reliance on, on these formal, uh, you know, military pacts, unfortunately, is just, you know, feeding uh, the, the kind of uh, arms race and the kind of insanity that is, has, has led to the, the uh, unfolding uh, Ukrainian tragedy. Do you think that every time a, a large nation what we used to call superpowers, that may be an old-fashioned word at the present time, uh, attacks and, and occupies a small, smaller nation. That hurts the international order, doesn't it? it, that, it that very much just, so. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a problem. It's a problem. It's a problem of precedence, and indeed, that's one thing that the um, Western countries are really pushing. That this is about more than Ukraine. If Russia can get away with this. They might attack Lithuania or some other country, or give other yeah, country you know, aggressors the, the 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 idea they can get away with invading other countries. But the fact is, you know, the the U.S. has already given that, you know, uh, uh, you know the, the the support that uh, European countries have been giving to Morocco, uh, and um, 
And, you know, they, they've been a little more moderate on Israel than the United States has, but there too, you know, we're, we're not talking about putting sanctions on, on Israel and Morocco for, for their refusal to recognize uh, the territorial integrity of, of, of Western Sahara and Palestine and, and Syria. And, and, you know, this is, um, um, so, so I think, I think one really, you know, this can, the tragedy in Ukraine can be an opportunity. We can talk about Morocco and, 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 and Western Sahara. We can talk about Israel uh, and, and Palestine. We can not, not as a whataboutism, not saying, oh, we have no right to, to, and nobody has any right to disagree with what Russia does until these other situations are resolved. No, we, we need to be firm against our Russian aggression regardless. But I think it, it, it we, we'd be a lot stronger in terms of, of getting the uh, international community to, to, to unify. And we would get, you know, a lot more support for our position if we weren't supporting the very same kinds of aggression and, and, and violations of international legal norms uh, that uh, we're accusing uh, Russia of doing. Is there a difference on what can be done when an independent country is undergoing an invasion and what can be done to aid lands and populations that have been under occupation for generations? I mean, I, I, obviously, uh, there's, there's a humanitarian um, relief is, is very important, and it's been quite moving to see the outpouring of, yeah. of, of support uh, for Ukrainian uh, refugees. Now, of course, you know, people are pointing out the, the, the hypocrisy and double standards and racism in Europe towards uh, the migrants, uh, for, you know, that being, being supportive of migrants from uh, Ukraine, while less so from uh, refugees from well, actually, Africa. Germany had a good example of, of yeah. refugees. Yes, yeah, so, yeah, some countries have, been, have definitely been doing, um, doing a, better, um, a better job at it. But, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, the fact that, um, you know, the, I mean, when we hear about uh, the, the various atrocities, I mean, the, 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 just, just, uh, just uh, yesterday, the bombing of a, um, yeah. of a shopping, shopping mall. In, that in kind Cuba. of thing has been happening in the Middle East for, for Exactly, exactly. U.S. US made bombs and falling in urban areas in, uh, in Gaza, dropped by Israel, in, in Yemen, uh, dropped by, uh, by Saudi Arabia. Um, and you know when and and you know, the U.S. has been pushing the idea. Let's bring in the International Criminal Court to go after Putin and everything. But the U.S. has refused to join the International Criminal Court. We punish countries that have joined the International Criminal Court. U.S. law forbids the United States from cooperating cooperating any way with with the International Criminal Court. Similarly, we're talking about the United Nations Human Rights Council. The U.S. has been a huge critic of the UN. Um, HRC because they have been willing to criticize Israel and other other U.S. allies. You can go on same with Amnesty International and, and other reputable human rights groups. But again, it, it's, it's it's easy to to look at hypocrisy and double standards. But I think that the what can be used for our advantage is to um, you know to 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 recognize that uh, it's, it's wrong to kill civilians uh, regardless of, of their skin color. It's wrong for countries to invade uh, other nations. You know, regardless of their geopolitical alignment uh, with with the West, that uh, the Ukraine can be a, 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 an educational opportunity, a teaching opportunity, to to uh, to to remind you know people that uh, these sorts of things uh, have gone on in a lot of places, often with with U.S. support, and uh, we need to to be consistent, uh, both because it's the right thing to do, uh, and it's a um um. Uh, but also, it 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 it, it will it better enable us to stand up to to bullies like Putin if our our own record is is cleaner and more consistent. 
Okay, I might play some music now and then we'll come back to this. Don't you know it's darkest before the dawn And this thought keeps me moving on If we could heed these early warnings The time is now quite early That was quite early morning with um, Holly Near. And we're, and we're talking with uh, Stephen Zunas about um, Ukraine and other invasions and occupations. When we were 
um, talking about uh, other occupations, the last year in Israel has been interesting in some ways, hasn't it, politically? Yeah, so they've put together this this uh, broad coalition that is not actually holding together. They're going to have to have their uh, fifth, fifth election in almost as many years. Um, but it's it made the United States even more uh, um, reticent to push Israel to make any kind of uh, of compromises for peace. Uh, and um, but the um, uh, it, the the problem, of course, is that you know when if if the the the, the current coalition, which which moves, which ranges from a very right wing to to moderately left wing. Um, the the uh, the alternative is another block, which is uh, almost all right wing, <laughs> and uh, so uh, it, it's it's a really uh, the uh, this the, the, the unfortunately the demographics of Israel are moving in more and more to the right, so it's not going to be a good outcome. Uh, whatever happens, uh, am I wrong to say that the leaders of that group? Came from come from came from different places, but they actually act fairly civil to each other compared to a lot of politics recently. Well, I mean, you know, the um, there's actually, actually been a lot of name calling and nasty stuff. But the I think, I think what everybody's talking about Israel about is that they were able to have this broad coalition that would hold together, and and unfortunately, you have some parties, you have these ultra orthodox parties that insist that uh, you, know, you have to. You know, have some very very strict kosher rules for this or that or the other. You have another party which has its own parochial interest or, or whatever, and it, trying trying to hold it together. But the underlying issue is that, uh, I mean, w- whenever one criticizes U.S. support for Israel here and here here in the United States, people say, "Oh, Israel's a sole democracy in the Middle East," and and you know the um, and there are a couple of things wrong with that. You know, one one is that uh, you know the um, one reason there aren't more democracies is the U.S. is backing up all the all these dictatorships and sending them arms and training and security assistance to suppress any kind of a pro-democracy movement. But even putting that aside, I mean, the fact is is that uh, that, that you know even though uh, Israel uh, is an exemplary democracy for its Jewish citizens, it is also an occupying power, denying fundamental rights to a whole uh, people because of their ethnicity. Even within Israel itself, there are over 50 laws differentiating between Jews and Arabs, uh, with, uh, with the Arabs being treated as second-class citizens. Um, combine the discriminatory laws within Israel itself, uh, the uh, strict segregation and apartheid type uh, you know, situation that you have in the uh, occupied territories, the sort of in-between status for the hundreds of thousands of Arabs in occupied East Jerusalem. And putting it all together, um, you have Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, uh, Bet Selim, which is a leader leading a Jewish uh, Israeli human rights groups, all coming out in the past year by, and saying that what Israel is practicing is and does meet the international legal definition of apartheid. And that's not a democratic system. I mean, white South Africans could vote and have competing parties and call each other's names and, you know, do all the things that, that democracies do. But it was only 12% of the uh, South African population that are allowed to take part. And uh, if you look at the, uh, you know, if you look at the uh, areas that Israel effectively controls, you know, we're talking about less than half the population being the ones that have democratic rights. And so, 
I would. Uh, that's why I, I, I question the the, uh, the this, this big emphasis about Israel being a a democracy, uh, because uh, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, that's that's not the issue. The issue is what about the rights of non non Jews in areas controlled by uh, con- con- controlled by the Israeli government. What happened to the Arab Spring? Was it really an Arab Spring, or was it an illusion? Well, it was certainly desire for freedom was all very, very real. Um, some, uh, you know, you know, part of part of the problem was in some areas, civil society wasn't strong enough, or the state was too strong. Um, some cases there was foreign uh, 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 interference. Some cases, some people took up arms and they became civil wars. Um, the um, but you know the desire for freedom is certainly uh, there, and and it, it's, it's universal. I mean, the revolutions that swept Europe in 1848, it took another generation or so before we, they started consolidating into a genuine uh, the democracies. And you know, demo- and and in some parts of Europe, they're still struggling for democracy. So um, it's, it's an ongoing struggle. But uh, the, the 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 fact is, is that the younger generation they do not uh, buy the old. Uh, autocratic establishment. They do not, uh, you know, buy into the uh, these reactionary Islamists. Uh, they want accountability in government. They want social justice. The younger generation of Arabs, according to public opinion polls, uh, tends to be uh, far more literate uh, than than ever before, more politically progressive uh, than than uh, than ever before, and um, um, and and not willing to. Um, uh, you know, to, to, I, 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 they're not willing to be the pawns of anybody, whether it be reactionary clerics or imperialist power. So I'm actually pretty optimistic in terms of of where the uh, the Middle East can go. Uh, the problem is, is that you have these uh, uh, repressive governments, some of which are supported by the West, some are supported by the Rus- by the Russians, you know, that are are keeping people down. Uh, but uh, it's not, you know, lack. Uh, it's not for lack of desire. Uh, for freedom, because that is certainly uh, still very much there. How do you feel about economic sanctions, both against Israel but also against uh, Russia? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, uh, sanctions are a blunt instrument, and you need to be really thoughtful. I think a lot of times people put sanctions as sort of a, a reaction uh, without th- you know thinking through the the impact. I mean, obviously, uh, you want to you, you do not want to provide aggressor weapons with the uh, the means uh, to uh, to commit aggression. That's why I think the military sanctions are quite appropriate when you're dealing with governments that violate human rights or violate uh, um, international legal norms. In terms of um, sanctions against, say, a key uh, export, you know, like oil, um, yeah, that it, it depends. And on the one hand, it can it can hurt it hurt the whole population. And that uh, sometimes that gets people to rally around the flag or resent the people who are doing the uh, um, uh, the the, the uh, sanctions, not not the government that was engaging in the behavior that prompted them. Uh, at the same time, in, in, in most countries, uh, oil and, and other extractive industries are the, are you know do do primarily support the elites, and the elites are the ones that you're trying to target. And the problem with the oil uh, embargo against uh, uh, Russia is that. Um, we haven't. It's causing great hardships because we haven't gone far enough to go for renewable energy. And similarly, the U.S. refuses to rejoin the nuclear agreement with Iran, which would make up for a lot of the uh, uh, of the missing oil. Um, but uh, just to go back to to uh, I mean, we we're talking about uh, the um, 
sanctions, obviously occupying powers you know, should be targeted like Russia, like Israel, like Morocco. But unfortunately, the U.S. has free trade agreements with uh, uh, Israel and Morocco, and these were created after their invasions and occupations. We were essentially rewarding them uh, for this uh, um, act of aggression. Uh, the United States and France has blocked Minerso, the peacekeeping force in Western Sahara, you know, from um, uh, even having a, a human rights uh, mandate. Um, the um, the United States is uh, several states, uh, 26 states have passed laws uh, that punish um, uh, companies for boycotting Israeli settlements. Um, that if they refuse for political reasons to invest in Israeli settlements like Ben and Jerry's ice cream, uh, then the, the, the state will divest of the pension fund of your, of, of your company. Um, and, and similarly, individual contractors, they're not able to, uh, to get jobs of the states unless they sign a pledge that refuses that they do not boycott Israel. Though in these states, Israel is defined as to include territories controlled by Israel, such as the occupied West Bank. So even if you don't support the BDS call against Israel, but only in terms of the occupation, you'd be punished as well. So in the United States, it's going just the opposite. We are we are not we we are only not only are we only imposing sanctions on aggressors that we don't like, uh, but we are punishing those who try to boycott uh, aggressors that are allied with the um, with the United States. Well, we're talking about the United States. I wasn't going to go into this, but um, I will now. Have the the Republicans overplayed their hand? Is there going to be any kind of backlash in uh, November? In the- well, I think certainly the the um, uh, these these hearings about the the fact that uh, the events of January sixth, twenty twenty, um, were, were not just a, a spontaneous uh, protest by frustrated Trump supporters. This actually was an attempted coup. Uh, that involved the press of the United States. I mean, they were literally trying to physically prevent the uh, uh, a peaceful, orderly uh, transition of power, as has been guaranteed uh, by the um, uh, United States, uh, you know, a, a constitution for um, over two hundred thirty years. And uh, you know, this, and, and the fact that uh, you know, many Republicans are, are denying uh, that the seriousness of it that are attacking the committee you know, for even having these, these hearings, and that uh, quite a few Republicans are perpetuating the lie that the election was stolen. In fact, polls show a majority of Republicans think that, that Biden is not the illegitimate uh, president of the United States. So we are, you know, that, that, that a lot of people are, are buying, buying into it. I think what, what might have a more negative impact on the Republicans uh, would actually be the other big news has happened this past week in the United States, and that is the... Uh, uh, Supreme Court um, throwing out uh, the previous Supreme Court ruling that uh, that that abortion uh, was was a, a a constitutional right, and immediately we have over thirteen states that where abortion is now illegal almost in any in every any circumstance, and this is uh, creating uh, quite a, a reaction because the majority of Americans, while like anywhere else, I mean, there's, there are mixed feelings about the, uh, the moral issues involving abortion. The vast majority of, of Americans believe it, uh, it should be an available option for women. And, uh, the, uh, and the um, very, very, very hard-line position taken by the Republican Party on this uh, could uh, alienate the potential voters uh, in, in, in the November uh, elections. 
How crucial is that election? Well, it's pretty important. I mean, this is the uh, uh, the. the uh, I mean, they control you know, every single member of the House of Representatives is up for re-election, about a third of the U.S. Senate, and so it will it will it'll say who controls uh, the uh, the the legislature. If the Republicans can control it, uh, they can block in the, the investigations uh, into into Trump, um, and uh, they can uh, uphold some of these uh, electioneering laws. I mean, it's quite you know it, 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 this is this is the Congress is going to be in power in 2024 and you've got a supreme um, court Biden or some was... other other alum, uh, other democrat um wins the election and when they come to count the votes on january 6th of uh, 2025 if the republicans control both uh, houses of congress uh, they may not honor the results uh, so you know we're, we're talking about uh you know the republicans are really going in an authoritarian direction so yeah, this is this is uh, it is pretty critical uh, what's going to happen in November. I mean, what happened? Yeah, that's uh, what is the worry is that it won't just affect uh, who becomes a congressman or a senator. It may affect who becomes whether there can be a democratic election. Exactly. I mean, there's a I mean, the, the threat of authoritarianism in the United States is very real. And it pains me to say that. I mean, I've been on I've been on your show for years, and of course, I've talked about how the United States supports these dictatorial regimes and occupying uh, uh, powers, and how the uh, despite the rhetoric, uh, the U.S. government really doesn't support democracy as a principle. But at least we've been pretty good at at, at supporting democracy uh, here at home. And now we have one of the two major parties that really, quite frankly, does not support democracy any, anymore. They are willing to. Um, Give up democracy rather than give up power, and that uh, that is we're, we're, this is it's, this is a very scary time. How do you see the future of the European Union? Hmm. I've always I've been I have had a, has a soft spot for the European Union to be honest, partly because of World War Two and the idea that we don't want Europe at war with each other. We want them to be a um, a, a peaceful society, if possible, and yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think, and the European Union has made a pretty good deal of that, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they've had their issues, and you know, certainly their left critiques about their kind of neoliberal orientation or whatever. But you know, they they've um, they've largely kept the peace. It's why they won their award of the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, when you think of all the wars yeah. that have taken over or taken place in Europe over the um, over the centuries. Um, and you know they are, and and, and it's, it's nice that they they are that, that you know, they have a system that that kind of keeps uh, keeps pushing them towards democracy. For example, um, a number of uh, the EU has tried to get these fishing agreements and free trade agreements with with the Kingdom of Morocco. Morocco insists that any agreement, economic agreement, include Western Sahara, uh, the occupied country to their south, as part of Morocco. Well, wanting these fishing deals and wanting the, this free trade agreement, the European countries have agreed to Morocco's terms. But repeatedly, the European court has ruled that this is illegal because Western Sahara is not part of Morocco. It is an occupied territory. It is a non-self-governing territory. And so they have, uh, 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 they have uh, canceled these agreements. And the, European, and the Moroccans say, okay, then we won't have any agreement if you don't recognize Western Sahara. And the countries keep appealing, and the court keeps saying, hey, you can't do that. And it, I, think it's, I think it's a good, healthy sign that you do have 
uh, it, it's, it's a system where you do have a court that can outrule, uh, overrule governments to get them to enforce international law. And this, in this case, you know, the idea that Western Sahara is, uh, is an occupied territory and it's not part of Morocco. Indeed, it's been recognized by, you know, um, one time or another by over 80 countries and it's a full member of the uh, African Union. Also, really, the European Union countries, many of them more, more equalitarian economically then um, yeah and, and this is a nice thing like nafta the north american free trade agreement and 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 the successor you know basically you have cap freedom of movement for capital uh but you don't have it for people and so and and similar and 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 so and similarly the rules can be different so so a, a, a company here in the united states a manufacturing plant can shut down here move across the border to mexico where they can get cheap labor weaker uh, 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 labor laws, weaker consumer protection laws, um, and uh, you know, uh, weaker you know worker health and safety, weaker environmental laws, etc., and uh, and make the same product. Well, you can't do that in the European Union. The European Union, they made the minimum wage the same. Uh, they they made workers' rights the same. Uh, they they made um, the uh, um, yeah the, the environmental laws the same. I mean, it, it, it's. And, and so and and so you have freedom of movement and capital. So that has kind of worked. Uh, but again, not not this, this free trade uh, model where you where you know it seems to be that uh, 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 the the uh, capital has the advantage at every turn. Well, how do you see the future of Europe now? Well, I mean, I, I think uh, you know paradoxically, I, I think that. Um, um, the, the the crisis uh, with uh, uh, Ukraine is, is bringing them together more. Uh, unfortunately, I think it, it does encourage militarization. You know, they do see this military threat, and there'll be more money going into the military, which means you know less for um, less for uh, you know human need, care, education, yeah, and, and yeah, and, and, and things and things things that they want. Um, also, the, the, the another another question is, is that some of the Eastern European countries, like, like Hungary and Poland, you know, you you wonder if they actually even even meet the 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 the, the definition in terms of democracy, you know, given especially the, the way Hungary has been going in a more and more uh, authoritarian direction. Interestingly, a lot of Republicans are seeing uh, Hungary as a model for how they want the United States to be, you know, where you know the, you. you uh, where the the, the, um, the government essentially controls the the, the media, uh, where the uh, um, you know they've they've uh, essentially controls the courts. They you know gerrymandered to keep a permanent uh, majority for the right wing party. You know, scary stuff that uh, that you know that's that uh, many Republicans want to, to emulate here in the um, in the in the United States. Uh, but um, yeah, I think the fact is the nation state is is past its prime. Uh, you know, the, we do need to have, uh, you know, I think a more regional integration, but it needs to be in a way that is is more egalitarian and meets the needs of ordinary people. Do you think that Poland, for instance, may actually feel more of a need to integrate with Europe now and and make some necessary compromises? Which they should I, I, I think so. Um, it, it's it's um. And in, in part, um, you know, because you know they, they you know, their their civil society has been really pushing uh, to um, 
you know, to, to not go as far as, as far as uh, Hungary has in terms of uh, denying um, denying uh, uh, individual rights. You know, immigration is continue to be a big issue. They people are, are, are don't want to that that uh, that their European leaders, of course, um, are, are afraid of the right wing. That the more um, the, the more immigrants come, it's going to it's going to encourage the right. That's why some left leaning parties are actually being friendly with Morocco because Morocco is threatened to let in a bunch of uh, migrants if uh, Europe doesn't support them more in the Western Sahara question. And so it's um they certainly have their um their, you know the, the issues that they are they're struggling with. But uh, yeah, I, I think the uh, I really hope the European holds uh, European Union you know, holds holds together. They're doing some important work. How about the UN? The UN has not been able to speak strongly about Ukrainism as much as necessary. And for world peace and for climate change, we need some kind of organization like the UN that actually yep. has some power and some legitimacy. Mm-hmm. And they have legitimacy, but they don't. Be. Do you think there's any chance of the five power veto being lessened in some way? Uh, hard to see how it can be done structurally. And, uh, and of course, the uh, Russian veto has uh, you know, prevents the UN from taking action on Ukraine, just like the U.S. and, and British veto prevented the United Nations from taking action against the uh, war of aggression against Iraq. Um, <clears throat> but uh, what you know, there, there are there is more and more talk about the General Assembly or others taking you know, more and more leadership uh, that cannot. Uh, make up for the 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 presence of the veto, uh, but can get uh, you know countries more involved now. Uh, more countries involved in terms of promoting peace. Now the now the problem is is that the United States has actually been opposing these reforms too, even though it keep it would make it stronger vis-a-vis Ukraine, because you know United States. I mean the 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 Russians, sometimes joined by the uh, the Chinese, you know have have used their 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 veto power. Over two dozen times to to prevent the international community from taking action around Syria or Ukraine, some other issues. But 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 you know the United States has used its veto over eighty times, um, for over forty of which, or close to sixty, I should say, the United States was the sole negative vote. The sole negative vote. About half of these involved Israel. So. Um, Russia may be the big obstacle at the moment in terms of the United Nations living up to its potential, but um, uh, the United States has certainly uh, you know, done its share and undermined the UN's uh, um, authority as well. But smaller nations actually need a strong UN. Oh, yeah, yeah, very much so. Of course, they're, they're the ones that have been... Um, um, I mean, that's one of the issues where I think the... Uh, New Zealand's been very supportive of strong UN. In fact, a lot of yeah, yeah. Nations, I mean, in fact, I remember all uh, nations would like to see the veto go. Yeah, and in fact, and, and, and New Zealand has uh, took some leadership on Western Sahara when the United States and France were blocking the Security Council from taking action when um, Morocco uh, expelled uh, the uh, civilian Minurso um, um, uh, uh, peacekeepers. And uh, I remember the, uh, the the New Zealand delegate was rather rather uh, upset uh, that the United States kept watering down the the resolution because again, w- uh, New Zealand, like a lot of small powers, you know, recognizes that the uh, 
the UN is, is the only thing that's really um, helping um, um, and is really holding um, holding the international you know, legal legal system together. And uh, that's obviously uh, to, to the advantages of, 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 small, of smaller nations. How much power could the assembly have if they were united? Or say, say 80% of the assembly was united. Well, I mean, there's certainly been, I mean, it, 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 it depends on what people are actually willing to do. I mean, Every year, the General Assembly votes almost unanimously, I think the United States and Israel being the only dissenters, uh, in, in protest of the United States' continued uh, economic embargo on Cuba. Um, but, you know, again, that certain hasn't uh, shifted uh, U.S. policy. But still, I think in an increasingly interdependent world, you know, having, you know, having the, the international uh, community uh, uh, you know, challenging you know, these kinds of policies you know, certainly is an important message, and it certainly um, you know, can can be can be something of a deterrent, uh, you know, for, for more out for you know to prevent the more outrageous behavior. But you know, I keep going back to Western Sahara as an example. Uh, along you know, uh, it, it, that uh, here we have a case where you have a country that is the, the, the Western Saharan movement, Polisario Front. They've never engaged in terrorism. You know, they always work through the UN. Um, you know, they've never questioned uh, Morocco's right to exist. And yet uh, you have the United States and European countries uh, supporting the Moroccan occupation, saying, no, you have to uh, most accept autonomy under Moroccan sovereignty. And, given, and you know, Morocco and Western Sahara is ranked the, out of 100, out of 200 uh, and, and um, uh, 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 10 countries, it's ranked 209th in terms of political freedom. I mean, the repression there is incredible. And yet, and yet you have the United States and the Europeans insisting that the people of Western Sahara live under um, live under Moroccan rule. Why and is that? So, um, that Morocco is considered a, a pro-Western uh, ally. The Polisario was originally kind of a leftist group. They're they're not that left wing anymore, but they are you know fairly democratic and and um, support women's rights and do. They're, they're, they're again a threat of a good example. Mm-hmm. I think that the uh, a lot of, mm-hmm. of of Western powers don't want to have. They also don't want to. Also, if if they lost the referendum, the Moroccans lost the referendum, which they almost certainly would. People would probably turn against the king, who's you know convinced most Moroccans that the the people of Western Sahara welcome their liberation. <laughs> you know, so I, I I think there's it's more about support for the king uh, than 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 okay. anything else. I mean, remember we have Biden who's about to go to Saudi Arabia. And 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 whole court with the man who who ordered the murder of a Washington Post uh, reporter, and and who's been you know bombing civilians and killing killing them by the tens of thousands in Yemen, you know so, you know it's not surprising that there are countries that can support uh, Morocco as well. Another oppressive. You've got less than one minute, but I'll ask you, as a Quaker, when the political and social horizon is dark, where do you find hope? Oh, it help it help helps being a uh, being a professor and having and 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 um, and and seeing all these very uh, aware students who are uh, who who are very concerned. Uh, young people are much more interconnected through social media. They know what's going on around around the world. Um, that they're that in terms of their political attitudes, uh, they are they are quite quite progressive and much more prone to action. So again, I think that is. That's really where, where I see, see the hope is in young people and in global civil society. Okay. Well, thanks a lot.
Dee. Stephen, thanks a lot for coming on, and we'll get together with you again uh, later in the year. Great. Looking forward to it. Thank you so much. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.